Our reading of God's holy word is taken from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 1 to 18. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you are post-millennial in your understanding of the end times, there are a number of passages in Scripture that really will warm your heart. And confessionally, we are post-millennial. That's actually in the Savoy Declaration, which is the confession of this church. Uh, I personally am post-millennial. And when I hit a passage like Isaiah 65, verse 17 to 25, uh, joy exudes. That passage reads like this. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people the voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, 
nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inherit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. If you are not post-millennial, you will note that at the beginning of this passage, God says, I'm making a new heavens and a new earth. And you would point towards the book of Revelation and say, when we see the new heavens and the new earth, there's perfection there. There is obviously not perfection here, however, and that's one of the reasons to take this post-millennially, God is in the process of drawing all time to perfection. You're going to have the judgment day. Christ is going to have fully redeemed the earth. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. But as we move in that direction, God's grace is doing things in the earth. And if you are post-millennial, you see a silver age coming. Not exactly a golden age where perfection happens, but a silver one where nobody dies until they're like over 100, but then they do die. Uh, people are still having children, but it's a blessed moment. And God is with his people. There's no more crying or wailing in Jerusalem, which is the people of God. Um, you still have sinners who are called accursed, but this is a very blessed time. This is a moment on earth where effectively the grace of God has been vindicated and uh, things are better than they have been because of what God is doing if you're post-millennial. And again, I am post-millennial. If you're not post-millennial, you kind of have to take this passage in a more spiritualized way. It doesn't really read that way to me. Now, I understand people who say it does, but it really doesn't to me. This is something that if you're post-millennial, you're looking forward to this. You look forward to it with hope. But now you might ask, if that is going to happen, how is it going to happen? Well, uh, there's another passage that warms a post-millennialist heart, and that is in the book of Habakkuk, and that's chapter 2 and verse 12 through 14. There in chapter 2, the prophet is talking about uh, effectively the kingdoms on earth and how the kingdoms have been used by God to punish the people of God. But even though the people of God are being punished, the righteous will live by faith. And then there comes to kind of an apex of the argument in these verses. 
Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. That's kind of a description of not only the Babylonians, but it's really kind of a description of every human government and people on earth. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain? So the language is everything the nations of the world are doing is effectively nihilistic. Every, their great visions are going to come crashing down. And what comes next with why that's true, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So the prophet says, all the great nations of man with all their pomp and glory and power and progress, their, their great achievements, it's really just like logs that get tossed in the fire. The reason being, there's going to come a day when the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So how thoroughly do the waters cover the sea? Well, the answer is totally, because that's what they are. The, the prophet is picturing a time where the knowledge of the Lord permeates all man's experience. And it's not that man has built up his technology and things have gotten better. It's not that man has advanced in medicine or psychology or uh, any of his vaunted uh, schools of thought. It's not simply that man has become altruistic or charitable, but the knowledge of the Lord has permeated everything. And when people have a knowledge of God, not, not an advancement in politics or anything like that, but a, a true knowledge of God that's when you will see things get better because the knowledge of God is what sanctifies. To know God is to be changed by God. There will come a day, says the prophets, when the knowledge of God will be so public that it's like the waters covering the sea. And if we were to go up to 2 Corinthians, we would see the Apostle Paul borrow that kind of language from Habakkuk and talk about how the knowledge of God is known in the face of Christ, which can be seen in the heart of the believer. But he uses language like the glory of God is going out, you know. And so the prophets picture a time when the world gets much better. There's a lot to look forward to because the knowledge of God has gone out. Well, that brings up the question, how does that happen? How does the knowledge of the glory of God go out and cover the world as the waters cover the sea. There is an answer, a very solid one. Our Lord Christ, before he ascends into heaven, gives the great commission, and you could quote this from memory, but it's very much a part of what we're looking at. There's coming a silver age before the return of Christ. Everything will be better. Uh, it comes from the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Where does that knowledge come from? Listen to what our Lord Christ says. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So 
the Lord Christ is reigning this very moment. He is over all things. He assures us of his power and authority because he's reigning. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Amen. Classic verse. It's used to emphasize evangelism. Most of the time when it's emphasized, the, the preacher doesn't point out that this is the language of discipleship. He should, because biblically, evangelism and discipleship are so intertwined you can't pull them apart. But this is the Great Commission. Jesus says, go out and disciple the nations teach them. Uh, I have all authority in heaven and earth. Go make known the gospel. This is the knowledge of the Lord going out into all the world. Ultimately, Habakkuk says it's going to cover the the earth like the waters cover the sea. Isaiah says there's going to come a time when the world has been made better. There's still sinners in it, still rebels. But it's a glorious silver age. Uh, people live longer. People are given to rejoicing. Uh, God has effectively been vindicated. This is before death and sin stops. Well, how does the Great Commission happen? It is arguable that the paradigm I'm about to describe might not be the best way to describe it. But it is the way we have described it, so I'm going to go with the standby. Generally, evangelism and discipleship is done either as foreign missions, where you send somebody to West Africa, or it is local missions where uh, Christians know their neighbors and share the gospel and invite them to church, you know, that sort of thing. We've tended to view the Great Commission in that way. Foreign missions or local missions, probably better to see the whole thing holistically. You know, mission is wherever God's people happen to be, whether they're in West Africa or they're here. But regardless, uh, it's people telling people. It's people who know the Lord Christ telling people about the Lord, the knowledge of God, crossing the world, ultimately covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's how this works. It's worked pretty powerfully for 2,000 years. The truth is the gospel has gone out quite a bit. But I think that you would agree it doesn't doesn't spill forth the way we'd like it to. I mean, when, when Habakkuk talks about the knowledge of the glory of God covering the earth as a water-covered sea, that, that's still currently an overstatement. We haven't got there yet. There is pushback against the gospel. There is impediments to it. In foreign missions, what do you think is the number one reason why a missionary leaves the field. They have been called to be part of this, to to bring the gospel, 
to another land. They have been willing to leave their country and everything they understand. Uh, they've gone into someplace very uncomfortable, another complete society. What is the number one reason missionaries give when they say, I'm out of here, I'm done? Anybody want to take a guess? Y'all never say anything, and occasionally I want you to. Um, people, people leave the field. They, they walk off. And there are things that might come to your mind. Uh, just earlier this week, I was reading about a missionary in India. He and his two sons were burned to death by angry Hindus. Uh, there's violence directed at missionaries. That's a fairly common practice. You would think, okay, hostility from people like Hindus or Muslims. That would drive people from the field. That's not the answer. Uh, lack of financial support or the, the, the awkwardness of going into another culture you don't understand with food and customs totally alien to you. That's momentous. That's not the answer. Uh, my mentor, Steve Nielsen, went to West Africa, where he was missionary for, I think, a good 20 years. The medical conditions in West Africa were such that uh, two of his children did not survive birth. They would have if they were here, but they didn't there. That happens to missionaries all the time. Is that the answer? The answer is no. The number one reason that missionaries give, I mean, it's way higher than anything else, is I have left the mission field because of conflicts with other missionaries. We are supposed to work together as a team, but I just can't deal with my colleagues. That's the number one reason a missionary leaves the field. I wonder if there is something similar, a phenomenon similar to that in local missions. You don't have to leave your home to do that. I mean, you do that right where you're at. But is there anything like that locally? Well, our scripture read lesson today was from Philippians. Philippians was my target book about a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago. As some of you know, I always have something percolating that I'm just reading for me. Well, it was Philippians, and I was even kind of embarrassed about it because uh, Philippians is one of those books in the New Testament that evangelicals absolutely adore. If, if they know any book of the New Testament, Philippians will be it. And one of the reasons for that is it's so amazingly positive. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Let your rejoicing be known to all men. If you go through the four chapters of Philippians, the theme of rejoicing and joy is really very powerful. And that draws evangelicals to it. I mean, like, like moth to a flame. And that is a major, major biblical doctrine. In fact, that was the focus of my sermon last week. Uh, you know, the, the psalmist calls God's people to rejoice even though they're in conflict. So it's not like this doctrine doesn't have a major bite to it, but you can kind of see where evangelical be drawn to it. That is a theme of the book. Uh, it's been called the epistle of joy. 
and uh, it deserves it. But one has to ask the question, why is Paul so focused on rejoicing in the Lord? What's driving that message? Especially when you get to chapter 4, which I cited last week, where Paul says, again I say to you, rejoice in the Lord. For me to repeat myself is no problem, and for you it is safe. Safety. We don't tend to think of joy in terms of, I'm in danger, therefore I should be in joy. But that's exactly the way Paul described it. What is bringing that up? What, what, what leads to it? Well, there's a couple other themes in Philippians that don't get emphasized as much. I'm not really sure why. Because just as much as joy, in Philippians, there's the theme of evangelism. When Paul writes to the the church at Philippi, the first thing he talks to them about is how they, as people in the church, not apostles or pastors or, or any office, but as people in the church of Jesus Christ in Philippi, they have all participated in evangelism, in what we've been talking about, in the the knowledge of the glory of God spreading to the world as the waters cover the sea. Listen listen to these first couple verses, beginning at verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace." So right out, of the, right out of the gun, Paul says, why do I love you people so much? It's because you're involved in discipleship and evangelism. You've been involved with me. Uh, you are, are, are speaking the gospel. You're confirming the gospel. You are a witness to the gospel. Um, you've worked right side by side with me. And if you go elsewhere, like the second half of the scripture reading this morning, Uh, You have verse 12 through 16. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Paul pictures the people in the church as being like stars in the darkness. And in verse 16, there's an interesting uh, translational thing. It's not a textual variant in any way. 
Paul says you are holding out the word of life. Now, the New King James says holding fast to it. If you read some other translations, they read like this. Um, here is the original NIV. As you hold out the word of life. Here is today's English version. As you offer them the message of life. See, uh, it can be translated either way because the, the Greek is talking about, it's like holding out a torch. You know, you're holding on to it really tightly and you can emphasize that, but you can also emphasize the fact you're holding out for light. And both are in the original Greek. It's not a contradiction. Uh, Paul says to the Christians, you're like lights in the darkness. You're like men holding a torch of light and nobody can see unless they have the light and you're the light. You are making the knowledge of the glory of God cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is, this is all the way through uh, Philippians. Um, listen as for the first chapter comes to an end. It's verse 27 through 29. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit. You stand fast. The language is military. You know, you stand fast in combat. You've got hostility coming against you, but you're standing fast. That you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, striving for the faith, working for the faith, trying to bring the knowledge of the glory of God to cover the earth, um, striving for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which to them is proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So... Paul pictures the Philippian church getting pushed back to the gospel, but they are holding it out. They are standing fast. They are evangelizing and discipling. Uh, and, and he calls them not to be afraid of what bad guys will do to them, which means they're going to be tempted to fear, but they are keeping the line. And so all the way through Philippians, you've got this theme of discipleship and evangelism, making the knowledge of the glory of God known in the world. There is also a theme of unity. You heard the passage I read. Now, if there's any consolation in Christ, any, any good thing, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Uh, have the mind in y'all, it's plural, that was in Christ. He didn't focus on himself. He focused on the mission to save the elect. Christ gave himself for the gospel. Uh, you, you can't miss that Paul is saying, now you all be in one mind. And it's right there in the passage. Uh, it's been in several passages I've read. When Paul says you're standing fast for the gospel, not being moved, he says you should be in one mind. It leads into the passage I read be of one mind, the mind of Christ. There is an emphasis on unity running its way through Philippians, just as much as there is joy and evangelism. 
So you've got these three things woven together. Why is Paul talking about joy and unity if his major thrust is you need to be involved in evangelism, which you are, what is the deal? Well, there are some things that threaten joy, and there are some things that threaten evangelism. There's pushback happening, and if you look for all three of these things, you'll find them in the epistle. There's persecution. Paul says your adversaries are hurting you, they're striking you. That's happening. And so they need encouragement. Uh, and also, if you get to chapter 3, you're going to find out there's false teachers in town. Beware of the dogs, beware of the mutilators of the flesh, beware of those who call themselves the circumcision. Uh, you don't get that kind of passage unless there's somebody that's set up shop with a false gospel, and Paul has to warn them about that, and joy and unity are going to be required to hold that at bay. So that's happening, and that's significant. But the most important issue, and what seems to have triggered the writing of Philippians, is not something that's external. That, that external threat is real, and the apostle deals with it. But the real reason most believing scholars believe this letter was written is in chapter 4 and verse 2 and 3. There we read, I implore Iodia and I implore Synthache to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, he's used that language of same mind several times, and now he's naming names. These are people who are in the Philippian congregation, and when this letter is read, people can say, I implore Eodia, and I implore Syntyche to be of one mind in the Lord. In fact, he goes on to say, and I urge you also, true companion, which is a reference to Epaphroditus, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. So you got the emphasis on the gospel here, too. Uh, these women have both been involved in making the knowledge of the glory of God known as the water covered the seas. They both worked with me, uh, but you need to help them. They worked with me and Clement and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. When a minister preaches through Philippians and gets here, uh, usually what is conveyed is that this language sounds like a petty squabble. You've got two women who are really mad at each other. We all know what that's like. That's ugly. It's usually about something petty. People stop talking to each other. People get catty. Maybe it's like that, but actually, if you just read the text, Paul doesn't actually comment on whatever it is that's got a Yodi and Synthaki at odds. Is it petty? Maybe, but I have no biblical warrant to say it's petty. And I'm absolutely positive that if you ask a Yoda or you ask a, a Synthaki, is this petty? They'll tell you no. They're really mad at each other. They've got their list of things that they're mad about, and uh, it's affecting the church. It is affecting their evangelism. It's affecting the joy of the church. 
And Paul does not say this is a light argument or this is a heavy argument. He calls on Iodia and he calls on Synthache to get along in the gospel. He says both of them have worked in the gospel of Christ. Both of them have worked alongside of big hitters, Paul, Clement, and the rest of my my brothers who are working for the gospel. Um, This fight between two women in the church is actually more threatening than the persecution. It is more threatening than the false teachers. It is sapping the church's joy. It is sapping the church's witness. And so Paul gets to the crescendo of Philippians and says, these women need help. He calls them to get along in the context of the joy that the church needs in the Lord and the gospel witness. That makes it pretty significant. Technically, I'm preaching on the psalm, and I haven't touched it yet. But the psalm is so familiar to us. It was proven about six months ago. We can literally sing it without having to see the words. It's kind of like our theme psalm. You know it, and you know what it's about. The first verse is pretty familiar to anybody who knows the psalms. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Well, that's, we're talking about that. We're talking about the, the church at Philippi needing to be in unity. We're talking about foreign missionaries losing their unity and losing their witness. We're looking at a church of Christ threatened to lose its witness because of lack of unity. Um, that's why it's good and pleasant when they have it. And the psalmist goes on to emphasize that in the next couple of verses. Brethren dwelling together in unity is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. I remember watching an evangelical minister preach on this psalm years ago, and he said, you know, I don't understand anything past the first verse. You know, I don't know anything about the beard and the oil and any of that. But the word of God says how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. And let me tell you, it really is. He's right, but he really needs to know the imagery. The imagery is of the anointing of the high priest. What does the high priest do for you? Well, he takes an offering for you into the presence of God. He intercedes for you against God's wrath. He is the vessel of God's mercy to bring you grace. And so when the psalmist says the unity of brethren is like the oil that's poured on the head of Aaron, he is talking about the administration of the grace of Jesus Christ. Christ is anointed. Aaron foreshadows and prefigures him. This is the life that comes from the priestly ministry. The psalmist goes on, it is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. When the ancients talked about the dew being like the dew of Hermon, Hermon was a place in the promised land that was incredibly verdant, where life came. You could grow a crop on Hermon like nobody's business, because it was just really, really fertile. 
And so another imagery of life, this is where a crop gets raised. Things like you are the first fruits from among the dead when James uses language of the harvest. Or these are the fruits of the spirit where a crop is raised. The psalmist says, where does God grow his crop? Where does he bring his life? It is where brethren dwell together in unity. That's where that happens. And in fact, to drive it home, the last of the psalm is, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now that's pretty good and pleasant. That's eternal life. And so the psalmist is is running right parallel with the book of, of Philippians. The unity of the Christian church, living as family, living as brothers, getting their act together and forgiving one another, a lack of that is more threatening than anything the devil can bring from outside. It is far more threatening than persecution. It is far more threatening than false teachers. That's where churches die. And when churches die, the light goes out, even when the church doesn't disappear. How many churches are around us? Hundreds, right? I mean, I don't know the answer to it, but there are hundreds of churches around us. How many churches are known for being the light of Christ around us? The answer is some of them. I mean, we're not the only church of Christ in town. I would never tell you that. We're not. There are some very healthy Christian churches around us, and I thank God for them. doesn't matter to me what the name of the church is. If it's a healthy church of Christ, I thank God it's out there. But how many of them really are there? Probably not a lot, to be honest. Did they start out unhealthy? Did they start out without the light, without joy, without fellowship? Is that how they started? I would tell you no. That they were founded with a passion for the gospel. They were founded with a vision for the coming eschaton, to use that highfalutin word, with a view that the knowledge of the glory of God should cover the earth like the water covers the sea. They were founded with a absolute intendance that that happened but the light went out did it go out through persecution maybe but not likely did it go out through heresy coming into the church probably yes but that was probably secondary what probably happened to begin with was the family stopped being the family There ended up being people not talking to each other, people not forgiving, people keeping record of wrongs. Eodia and Scythike end up not working it out. Uh, The Epaphroditus of the church doesn't help, and it poisons the church. All the joy goes away. All the light disappears. Am I wrong? Or is this how things tend to work? If you are post-millennial, you're looking for the knowledge of the glory of God to cover the earth. And you believe it's going to happen. But for that to happen, you have to be kind of people who are going to live in that silver age. 
God changes people. And the light goes out through people by the grace of God. This is a matter of the gospel. How good and how pleasant it is when brethren brethren dwell together in unity.